Hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm with an old friend of mine. We were trying to work out how long ago we met and where. Probably 2004 in New Orleans. Probably 2004 in New Orleans. Was that ICA or NCA? ICA. So International Communication Association. If not before in Austin or some other Cultural Studies Conference. One of these places where people with funny voices get together. <laughs> we were just chatting about different styles of English. And I'm, I'm with Ferru Yilmaz. Am I pronouncing your names reasonably? Pretty. Well? Reasonable. Pretty, okay. Yeah. How would you pronounce them? Though? Ferru Yilmaz. So I think that's yeah. approximating to my effort. And we're in New Orleans, in your office at Tulane University. Um, I'm about to sip a very nice cup of tea you've brewed me. Tell me what you've been up to recently. What's preoccupying you? What you're working on? I'm trying to finish my book manuscript. It's mm-hmm. the introduction. That's the last one mm-hmm. I'm writing right now. And I, if I didn't teach, I will finish it in a um, moment. But um, teaching takes time. And energy. Yes. Also. Also. And tell us a bit about the book. The book. The book. <laughs> I used to say, I still say both to my students and my colleagues, that if you can't uh, formulate your argument in one sentence, mm. even with clauses, mm. then you don't have an argument. So let's see how I meet the test. Well, it's the version you give your cousin or your mother. No. Oh. Um, what's the version you would give your cousin or your mother, and what's the version you would give your publisher? Um, they will be similar, but mm. I may word it differently. What I do in the book is a story, an anatomy of the change of immigration discourse in Denmark, whereby the old immigrant workers, mm-hmm. foreign workers, mm-hmm. was were turned into Muslim immigrants. Workers emphasized, mm-hmm. Muslim emphasized. Right. And for me... That is a change in the ontology of the social, as I say. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't use that word to my mom. Right. I use it as an, as an academic way of yeah. uh, responding to different theoretical paradigms. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, tell us about that shift. Where historically had migrant workers come from to labor in Denmark? Mostly, um, the biggest three groups came from Morocco, Pakistan... I think many of the Pakistanis were actually um, from England. They were escaping from the racist um, environment in the 70s, and they came to Denmark. And then Turkey, that is the biggest group. Since. And and these recruits, this started in the 60s and 70s? 60s, yes. And it was for construction and factory work? Factories. um, They were guest workers. They were all guest workers. So rather like what happened in Germany. Yes, very similar. Very it's similar. the same process, it's the same kind of people, it's the same kind of uh, problems, solutions, and so on. And when did they become racialized or Islamicized? Uh, racialized, you see, race is a weird category. People use it now and then, but they usually use it um, in the place of a cultural category. It's like categories in people in, in um, a vernacular discourse are very flexible. People do stuff with them. They do not necessarily say the same thing every single time they Absolutely. mention 
a category like lay, yeah. race, white. But that is not common to Denmark, the Danish um, discourse, uh, racial discourse. You will hear now and then um, racial um, um, labels, mm. but mostly it will be cultural or ethno-national. Um, yeah. And then there are specific words like, b b I don't know how you pronounce the bear in France, they, it will be the young um, Algerian North African immigrants. In Denmark they will be uh, Perka, which mm. is probably a combination of Pakistani and Turkish. Uh, okay. I'm guessing. I never actually looked into it. Perka could be a racial category, but it's usually people understand it in more cultural terms. Yeah. And some yeah. people will say, yeah, well, it's cultural racism. Yeah, if discrimination on the basis of difference is racism, then yes, it's racism. But mm. to me, it's more interesting to see what is going on um, in discourse rather than mm -hmm. trying to understand it through... Um, those categories. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So, so I didn't answer your question though. That's okay. That's okay. It's a conversation. No, I will answer that question all right, all right, if yeah. you want. Yeah, yeah, great. It happened sometimes in the mid 80s. Uh, it, it is not that culture or religion wasn't part of the discourse, mm. but it always came together with other issues. Mostly the focus was on the um, economic problems that immigrants created mm -hmm. or the rights, immigrants' rights, mm -hmm. bad housing, mm -hmm. the working conditions, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Culture, if you didn't like immigrants, you would bring culture in as a bad description of the immigrants, mm -hmm. as you will do with the Swedish immigrants at the beginning of uh, 20th century, at right. the end of 19th century, the same with German. Polish, and so on. But how I see it is that those cultural descriptions, cultural resources were used to say something bad about immigrants, but the general focus will be on um, the labor issues, and they will be discussed in terms of labor, labor um, market, working class organizations, labor unions, and so on and so forth. What changes that they became an ontology in themselves? Because if you talk about class, working class, mm -hmm. then you're talking about an ontology which is called class, working class, mm -hmm. and they are part of it, despite their differences. Mm -hmm. But if you are not anymore talking in class language, but um, describe the divisions in society in terms of culture, then you ontologize cultural differences, mm -hmm. and that's what the turn is about and that's what I was studying mm. and I've been studying right and um, it happened sometimes in the 80s there was a huge moral panic around uh, incoming refugees refugees from where um, mostly from Iran Iraq but some from Sri Lanka mm. um, were there others I think they, they, those were the um, biggest yeah. groups and there was this uh, right-wing, mainstream right-wing government, and especially the Minister for Justice was pressing for uh, tightening the immigration laws. So mm -hmm. he created kind of campaign against refugees, providing the police and the media with 
daily briefings, daily information about how many came, how many problems they brought with them, mm. and so on and so forth. Mm. There was a big panic um, atmosphere. And I remember how it was that by then too. At the same time, they were dismantling the welfare system in a way, in the same way as Thatcher was doing it in the 70s and mm. 80s. There was this dissatisfaction, there was this anxiety about the future of mm -hmm. nation. Mm -hmm. And then you have this dissatisfaction that can't be represented in the system because social democrats had accepted the neoliberal orthodoxies, like you have to privatize, you have to mm -hmm. obey the rules of the market. So you have these big groups of people who feel anxiety about their lives, about mm -hmm. their future, about yeah. the welfare system they build up, and then there is this panic of immigrants or refugees yeah. coming, pouring in, yeah. streaming in. So it's, it, it's about, in some sense, the fiscal crisis of the state, and of course then the way of managing that fiscal crisis and redistributing income upwards. I would call it crisis of representation. Fiscal, was there a real fiscal crisis? I don't know. But the government has represented it that way. Has represented it that way. And in explanation for the reduction in services and economic security for local people, for citizens, it's very easy then to cathect onto the other, the foreign worker, as the cause of the loss of economic services and economic citizenship. And the discourse was that we can afford it and we yeah. should stop, yeah. um, we should tighten the immigration laws. And then yeah. this situation where there are anxieties and those anxieties cannot be represented in the system because there are no parties that represent them. And then um, there's a moral panic around incoming refugees. Mm. It's a very condu conducive environment for French voices to come in and articulate those uh, resentments mm. in new political and alternative ways. And they did. They came in and said, look, this is all about our nation and the future of na yeah. our nation and uh, yeah. our cohesive force as a nation. Are we going to survive as a nation in 20 years if we let mm -hmm. immigrants come in? Right. And there was an ad in the... Actually, it started with an ad, if you ask me. In the ad, they were described as Muslims the first time. Not the first time, but what I mean is, like, instead of describing them as workers or people mm -hmm. who, have, yeah. who need... Um, protection, they were described as Muslims, incompatible group with the uh, Danish nation and what is going to happen to our nation. From there on, it started to roll. Well, then that always already identifies them as not integrated. Or incompatible, that is not integrable, yes. Right, whereas worker always already says, whatever else it may be, integrated can be integrated into guest, the system. Guest worker is more, a bit more complicated, but nevertheless, yeah. And also, when you say worker, you indicate the person is providing a service themselves. Whereas when you say immigrant, the or refugee, be, or refugee they are taking something. Yeah. Giving. And this is certainly what we see in the discourse at the moment in Britain, that you and I were gossiping about in the car this morning, where the notion of people coming from the newly acceded countries to the European Union into Britain is never that they're coming for a short while, they're coming because they want to work, they're not only going to provide services but pay taxes. None of it's that, it's all about they just want social services. So yes. I, I think this is 
both a very effective othering tactic, but also one that is used rather improbably to distract attention from what is actually happening, which is the It was the original intention by the mainstream right-wing government, but I think they were taken aback, by, uh, surprised by the intervention by the far-right, and they didn't want the far-right to intervene. So they reacted very strongly, and they actually were very um, accusatory in their tone against the far right. Mm -hmm. They were like racist. They were called racist. They were called this, that, yeah. which, and he, the guy, was very Powell-like. There was a figure, Sean Carl, like Enoch Powell. Yes, and Enoch um, Powell was the notorious British politician. He was also a professor of classics whose translation of Horace, I think, is still one of the most important ones, who gave a famous speech in the 60s about rivers of blood yeah. that would supposedly flow down the streets of Britain because of immigration by people of colour. Yes, so. and he did. He used exactly the same tactic, and he was also sacked from the British uh, Conservative Party uh, because of his speech. So. This guy, who is a priest and who is a right-wing intellectual, whose views were always considered on the fringes because he um, was very harsh against feminists. He mm. was harsh against homosexuals. He was a typical right-wing extremist in many ways. Mm. But mm -hmm. And he didn't gain respectability Im immediately. On the contrary, just like Le Pen, the entire establishment attacked him. But there was no other voice that, I mean, first, there was a controversy. When there's a controversy, you have to have um, one of the parts who is part of the controversy mm -hmm. to at least defend him or herself. Mm -hmm. That's what happens. Then you open up the uh, mainstream discourse for mm -hmm. French voices. Mm -hmm. They managed the crisis so well that within two years, whatever he was saying was repeated by social democratic mayors. Right. In the same way, they were talking about the cultural problems that immigrants brought with them. They started to talk about Muslim culture. They started to talk about gender equality. They started to talk about women. All these problems that probably were there if you consider them as huge problems that will change the society before this intervention. But these issues came into um, the focus of discourse and then... From there, mm, mm. the more you interpolate a group as Muslim rather yeah. than, say, worker, it becomes ontologized. It became, yes. becomes a group in and by itself. Yeah. And I can actually explain it um, in a very uh, personal way, too. Yes. When I went to Denmark in 1979, I moved into a progressive commune with other progressive people. It was actually New Left um, Party. We will talk together... Despite our ethno-national differences, we were part of the same collectivity. We would discuss about the government's dismantling of welfare system. We would protest Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. We would protest the Turkish military regime's brutal violation of human rights. We will protest things in the streets. We will have parties together. The differences did not matter as much. What brought us together was our political target. A political enemy. Yeah. But the more uh, media started to talk about immigrants, the more we started to talk about immigrants. Right. 
the more we start to talk about immigrants, the more we lost the side of the target, the political enemy. We start to talk about whether or not we should defend or not defend the immigrants, or whether or not we should defend that particular cultural practice, say female genital mutilation, mm. whether or not it should be a case or not. But you see, you are not talking about a political enemy anymore. Suddenly, not suddenly, slowly, I was being interpolated as an immigrant. Not because they were discriminating against me no, or anything no. else. But because that was the topic and this was the ontology. And the top topic yeah. put me into the position yeah. of immigrant yeah. and them into the position of Danish. Yeah. So suddenly we were ontologized too. Yeah. I felt that. Yes. And yes. I would go out and have a drink. And people at the end, after 15 years, I would go out and have a drink. And people would say, why are you drinking beer? Aren't you Muslim? Funny thing is this, I've always done it, nobody asked me those, that kind of questions, right. I never considered it as part of anything, and to be honest, I always considered religion to be opium of the people, for, because of my background in Marxism. What do you think I said? I said, yes, I'm Muslim, precisely because of the categorical implications of the question. I did not want to confirm their understanding that I was the exception to the rule. Right. I became Muslim. So you ontologized yourself yes. in response to their ontology. And this is what I call hegemony, you, even though you don't agree with ideology. No outside. It's difficult. Yeah. How do you navigate in that um, structure? Yeah. yeah. And I became Muslim that way. In a Danish pub. Yeah. So this is the story that I can illustrate with myself. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's a beautifully told story. Could we talk a bit about your background, the Marxism, but also how you came to be in Denmark? And to it's actually not a very interesting story. I, uh, I was in my first year at university in Turkey, and mm -hmm. then I went to England, met a girl who said, come and visit me. I went to visit her. I wasn't intending to stay, but then... Some people say, why don't you stay here for a year and see you around? And I right. said, oh, I asked my universe to give me a one-year leave. They did. And then in the meantime, the military coup happened. And I didn't want to go back while the military was in power. And then one thing led to another. Led to another. And there's a logic. And what about the Marxism? What about that? <laughs> <laughs> what about the workers? Where did that come from? Um, Did you wake up one morning and suddenly have a sore throat and realize you were a Marxist? No, but you know that 70s is the high point of um, new left movements all sure. over the world. Yeah. And we were, the, 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 peop, the kind of political philosophy that I subscribed to was very much influenced by the Latin American revolutionary movements. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that was the new left. Neither Stalinist, nor Soviet, or no Chinese versions of it. Uh -huh. We were critical of them, right. which is why when I ended up in Denmark, I ended up with the uh, left-wing socialist. It was a party that was again, um, none of those. It was new left. Right. So theoretically, Western European Marxism, as opposed to Stalinism, and in practical terms, influenced by Latin American guerrilla movements. 
Very interesting. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's amalgamation of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and when yeah. I look at back, I will say we were still influenced by stylistic thinking. That's a critique that you have always on your past, right? <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of your ideas about these topics, did they evolve as part of party political activity? Not really, not as a, in the beginning I wasn't a citizen, so I wasn't a member of any political party, but I was working closely with um, the new left. They were called left uh, socialists um, at that point. Mm -hmm. And we had actually a committee, I was focused on the Turkish politics, mm -hmm. um, so we had a committee that tried to um, create awareness around the, um, the military regime's brutal mm -hmm. oppression mm -hmm. in Turkey. So we were working with parties and groups mm. that came together in the committee. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So, yeah. So you came, you were there in a very different way from other Turkish folks who were in Denmark yeah. and arriving at that time. Yeah. From, they, you were there as a student and a young intellectual and a politicized figure. And they were there as guest workers. But they were politicized too. And this is another aspect of it. When I went there, the Turkish uh, associations called themselves the Association of Turkish Workers. They wouldn't say Turkish because um, many of the workers who came from Turkey were actually Kurdish. So they wouldn't call it Turkish. They I'm call, sure. They will call it the Association of Workers from Turkey. Oh, that's interesting. They wouldn't call themselves Kurds, though. They wouldn't say the Association of Kurdish Workers. No. Why not? Because that wasn't an ethnonational label that was uh, recognized. Available, but now they could use it. People they could use it, it but um, uh, the old guard is out of politics and the new, and that's what I was going to explain. When I went there, there were like three or four different associations, and they all had workers in their names, and they were all mm -hmm. affiliated with different um, uh, political organizations mm -hmm. in Denmark. One of them, the biggest one, was affiliated with the Danish Communist Party, Soviet right. Right. Uh, version of it. Another relatively big one was affiliated with um, Social Democrats. And the one we had was affiliated with the New Left. Right, right. Uh, but if you go to Denmark right now, you won't see any organization that call itself Workers' Union. Mm. They will call themselves Islamic or cultural or something. So they themselves started to understand themselves uh, in ca cultural categories, this and they are represented. This culturalization of the means of production, yes. the understanding of the means of production and the mode of production. And their place in society too. Yeah. So yeah. they respond to it. If you have been interpolated as a Muslim or a cultural being, since you were born, you understand yourself that way because mm. they call you all the time Muslim. You have to turn around and say, yeah. Altasarian moment. Exactly. Hey, you. Exactly. Mr. Muslim. I was referring to that. Senor Islam. <laughs> That's what happens. So now when you're in Denmark and in a pub, do you look for Mecca and pray in order to show the Danes that you've learned proper Danish... I speak English. Islam. You speak English better than they do. They don't like that. Exactly. Do they have a view of themselves as imperialists, given their imperial history? 
The imperial's history is not part of the consciousness, not that much. Mm. And Denmark has, wasn't one of the biggest imperial nations. No, but ask the Norwegians, they think Danes were imperialists. That's a complicated story. <laughs> That's a complicated story. They were all once the same thing, if you ask Danes. And so and not so if you ask Norwegians. That's also a new thing. There are different movements. There was actually a movement in the late 19th century and in the beginning of 20th century that didn't make sense that Scandinavian countries were different countries mm. and they should all right. come together. So, yeah. Actually, if you live there, you see that there are different views of those things. Right, sure. There is the official narrative, of course, mm -hmm. and then there are the alternative narratives. Mm -hmm. So, what made you become an academic? You've come a long way from being a young, hustling, in love, radical leftist, becoming a Muslim in a Danish part. And then academic. Yeah. How do you become a prof? I was tired of working nine to five. Yeah, it sucks, doesn't it? It sucks. What kind this of, sucks too. Though. This sucks too. <laughs> because what, I was working what, 40 hours, like actually 35 hours. Now I'm working 80 hours. Right. What kind of sucking was it though? <laughs> what was your job when you office I work, was or? a journalist. Journalist. I was working um, with the Danish public radio, producing mostly in Turkish news, but also contributing to Danish programs about the world and stuff like that was the stuff in turkish for local consumption yeah by turkish speakers yeah. oh that's good so when did the public broadcaster assume that responsibility i guess sometime in the 70s i'm not completely mm. aware of mm. the history mm. of it but they closed it down in the 90s did they yes because because there was no need and they shouldn't be kept in their culture Okay. But I was already out. You were so. already out. And it was... Did you direct the programs at Kurds, knowing that they were a big part of your listenership? Or did you have an undifferentiated Turkish listener in mind? No, it was mostly... The purpose of the news programs was... We also had other types of programs. But the right. news were mostly about informing immigrants about the life and oh, yes. things that are going on. Welcome in, to Denmark, in, how to get about, how to fit no, in. No, like today the Prime Minister said this and then they oh, are now going right. to make a new law that means this for you. Right, but directed at them. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Or general society, like um, taxes are going down, taxes are going up, whatever. Yeah. So after the radio journalism, what happened to you and when? We're in the mid-90s now. Or? Yeah. 93, I left it, and I started my BA, fourth time. Fourth time? Fourth time from scratch. Well, I, I, I dropped out of four graduate degrees, so... <laughs> no graduate degrees. They were all uh, undergraduate degrees. And the first time I told myself, if I drop out of this, I won't, I, I, I won't respect myself. So I decided to stay. And what was it? What was your undergrad? Film and Media Studies at the University of Copenhagen and then I wanted to try something else. I applied for a tuning, British tuning scholarship. Mm -hmm. They gave me one, surprisingly. I went to Goldsmiths, did a mm -hmm. master's. That changed my um, mind about academia. It was pretty good. It was really, really good. Um, 
people who write about, among other things, cultural industry now were my teachers. Uh, they were doing PhDs at that time. Yeah. Nick Caldry, uh, David Hasmandaj, and many other people. So it made sense. It all made sense. And I, when I came back, I said to myself, no, I'm going to go in. And I got a job, actually, as information officer for the board for ethnic equality. Um, said, um, in Denmark? In Denmark. Yeah. I actually worked for the Danish prime minister, <coughs> wow. among others. And the uh, minister for the uh, um, secretary of state, the foreign minister also. They were in the board. So I worked for them. So I may have taken a couple of beers with them sometime. So you asked me about my personal story. That's yeah. And then yeah. I applied for a um, scholarship for PhD in the States. Oh, I wanted to come away. I wasn't happy with being Muslim all the time. <laughs> I got one from a social science um, uh, council. I came and started my PhD in 99. And where was that? San Diego. UC San University Diego. California, San Diego. Which has sent many people into this very place, Tulane, it seems. Yes. And what topic did you work on there? Um, the one that I'm working on still, because I wanted to know. I, because I witnessed all this as a journalist. I knew what was going on, but I wanted to understand it also in a more analytical and theoretical way. So I um, started to read, and my theoretical background is both in discourse analysis and also hegemony theory, as mm -hmm. um, Lachlan mm -hmm. formulated it. Mm -hmm. And I had a very strong background in cultural studies coming from Goldsmith. So mm -hmm. I tried to combine them all, but mm -hmm. cultural studies had been uh, sidelined in the uh, process. I can tell you why, if you're interested. Mm -hmm. Please do. <laughs> I went to a cultural studies conference in Lisbon in 2003. In the main opening um, panel, there was a woman. Obviously, she was big enough to present in the opening right. panel. Right. Uh, presented her analysis of an interaction between a Spanish social worker and young African woman. But she was not African. She was born and raised in Spain. So she was trying to make sense of why the communication between these two were broken down. She said, since the language cannot be the barrier, it must be cultural barriers. And nobody said anything in that. I got offended. Right. And I thought, is it what cultural studies supposed to do, study, take for granted the ontologies that have been formed, and especially with the, by the influence of uh, far-right, and then take them for granted and study those yeah. ontological categories and their culture. And I have seen many of that kind of uh, studies, yeah. studying identity, right. studying as if identities, even if they say they are constructed, they are changing, uh, ongoing hybrid or whatever, they still take it for granted. Mm, mm. And that is a reflexivity mm. that should have been there. I mean, if one of the books that has inspired me to do my work is Policing the Crisis. Mm -hmm. Still mm. one of the big, biggest influences right. on me. What does that do? 
it looks at culture, but it looks at mm. how hegemony and power is changing the hegemonic structure of Britain through culture, in culture, through the games of identity, culture, all that stuff. Right, but without essentializing. This is Policing the Crisis by a number of people associated at that stage with the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies uh, that was at Birmingham University and I guess Stuart Hall is the most renowned of the authors of that collective group. Yes. But in many ways it understood mugging as a new invention category, newly invented category, and one that racialized much of the population, criminalized much of the population in particular ways. And through that, uh, pushed the working class to the right. Yeah. That's one of the things that opened up for the um, Thatcherite yeah, Germany. Exactly. Which he wrote later on. Yeah, and in fact invented the word Thatcherite. Yeah. <laughs> so, you're concerned when we accept these ontologies, when in fact they're moments of struggle that see these terms be reified, be accepted as real, legitimate, whatever. Yeah? Yeah. That's really a big part of your animation what dynamizes you yes and that's a lot of what you're going to be looking at in this well you've finished it virtually but looking at in this book that's going to come out in a little bit. yes and in the future i want to look at actually one of the things that interests me is um how do faint voices get into the um mainstream and make themselves um mainstream yeah and i think crisis play um big role, especially moral panics, and I want to theorize around it, how they help to keep, for example, if you can have something like Charlie Hebdo, mm -hmm. it's a big crisis, but after a couple of months, other things get in, onto the agenda, and people mm -hmm. forget to talk about it, and people forget to talk about Muslims and Muslim culture. So do you have to keep it in focus in order to keep it as an ontological mm -hmm. category? How mm -hmm. does that happen? Mm. I think it happens through the production of incessant crisis around right. Muslims. And that's what I've been seeing since the mid-80s. Yeah. Different scope, crisis of different scope, but there is always you, a crisis around think, something. Has it intensified since the end of the Cold War? Yes. But I'm not sure it's connected to the Cold War. But it, they are all connected. The thing is that Culture and religion, to the extent we can differentiate them, have become of increasing importance in geopolitics since the collapse of overt ideology as a distinction. And also the client-state system that existed was broken up then. And then I guess a crucial factor in all of this is that, some would argue, Groups that were oppressed, particularly in the Arab world, by the elites that were controlled by the British and the Americans from the 20s and 30s on, especially in the oil states, but not only, found religion as one place where they could express themselves, express this opposition. I mean, Partha Chatterjee, in his work on colonial India, says that the British made a fundamental mistake in saying, oh, fuck it. We'll leave religion to them. It's one thing we don't really need to control. We don't care. And then that explained why religion became the point around which politics could occur. Right? 
Yes. And Tim Mitchell, I think, makes a similar point about Islam. Yeah, and I think the same um, argument could be made about Iran. Mm-hmm. Or how Khomeini came to yes, power. Yes, absolutely. Because religion was the only space yeah, under Shah. Where, where the, these forms of expression can occur. Turkey is an interesting case. Um, because Different, we, different in a way. Because of the, well, for many reasons, but not least the military. And the military as the supposedly force, force of liberalism. The supposed voice of secularism. Yes, but there's one element that's missing from that narrative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you read uh, Amina Louf, um, I read, I remember one part of it. If you were born in Lebanon in the 60s, 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. and become younger later on, right. you will be a socialist. If you were born in the 70s, 80s, you will become an Islamist. It's not because things change. Social scientists have a curious tendency to think of social change as structures moving around and ideologies come in and go. Mm. And somehow political agency gets lost in that. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm saying is mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Arabic world and, the, and Turkey too and all over the world, in the 70s there was a very strong left-wing movement, mm-hmm. secular socialist mm-hmm. movement. In Arabic countries, they start, they tried to combine it in some countries with Islamic discourse, in some countries nationalist, and but pan, still and pan Arabism also. Yeah, and they were crushed yeah. brutally. Yeah, and who, who is going to express those re, uh, resentments? Religion yeah. becomes yeah. the only one, and it was actually encouraged against the left. Yeah, and so when, for example, people want my support in the fight against Islamism, I say, well, I was fighting against them in the 70s, and you were supporting them against me. Yeah. So, what's going to happen? Where are we going to... Where are we standing now? I've got a last question, if I may. Okay. You've had a long day. You've given at least two classes. Yes. And many, many hours, but you're still... And you've got to put up with me for dinner as well later. It's a, a pleasure. A slightly long question, but you'll fix it up. Okay. I thought the Weberian insight about the disenchantment of the world was teleological and correct. And so in my 20s and 30s, I believed that there was an unfurling narrative in which basically everyone would become secular like me. I was out of my mind. Are we in a post-secular world? A world, an expression I never thought it could be brought into the discourse. I wouldn't use that expression, but I'm extremely, extremely disturbed by what's happening right now. I am very afraid of ISIS. I'll tell you why. None of the other Islamist uh, movements have been able to scare me. I knew that they were used to scare and uh, so fear, but ISIS scares me. People who were born and raised in European countries, go to Syria to fight. So ISIS must be giving them a vision, mm. a vision of being part of something bigger. And they, they clearly, like, they don't care about the conventions that I care. No. They kill people in front of cameras and they show it off. And that's a vision. That's they a get very children to kill people. They just had a situation. It's a very radical vision. Radical child. vision that simply doesn't recognize the other side. Yeah. And that vision, I've been experiencing it from 
um, right-wing radicals in the West. So I'm afraid that the world is going into these two camps. And if we start navigating in a world divided like that, I don't know where I'm going to be. Mm. I'm scared. I mean, I'm old enough. I hope it won't happen within my lifetime, but I'm, I'm afraid that dystopia can be reality in the future. So I guess it's an answer to your question or what? Uh, I don't put it into post-secular terms, but I do think that religion has become one of the venues in which resentment Mm. against, um, I think, disenfranchisement yes. all over the world is finding its um, radical uh, vision. Well, Farouk, that is a dystopic answer, but I think it's a dystopic time in that sense. I appreciate the time you spent with us. Can you tell us the title of your forthcoming book? Oh, we haven't decided it. I have been... Uh, um, it's under erasure. I would like to call it from um, work, from worker to Muslim. From worker to Muslim, that's fantastic. Yeah. Let's see what the editors will say about that. Yeah. And I guess it'll be out in a year or so. I hope so. Yeah. That'd I really hope so. I should be, if I weren't doing this interview, I would be, I would be writing. I'm oh, joking. <laughs> God. The responsibility of sound. Thank you so much, Peru. It's always great to talk to you. And when you're my host at dinner tonight, I'll keep reminding myself that every second of your valuable time is being taken away from trying to deal with the post-secular world. But I need breaks too. Indeed you do. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you.